Hello, and welcome to Why Does This Keep Happening to Me, a podcast about how we keep ourselves stuck and how to become unstuck. So today we're talking to Smita Chan, who's a blogger, a public speaker, and a domestic violence survivor. Her blog, Smita Shares, is an amazing blog where she shares things that she loves about making a living, politics, about her life and her experiences. And she's been very candid and authentic on her blog about her experience with domestic violence and the PTSD and depression that followed. Her purpose of sharing her very personal story is to spare others from experiencing the same. So welcome, Smita. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on because you've been so candid about your experience. And I think that there are so many myths and misconceptions about domestic violence. And I think that people don't realize that it's a leading cause of injury to women more than car accidents, muggings and rapes combined. Wow. It's really huge. One in three women in the US will experience partner violence. And I think that people don't really understand what domestic violence really is. I think that they just think it's violence. Absolutely. There are so many other parts to it, like verbal, there's mental, emotional, financial, there's so many other things that go into it. Correct, yeah. No, I agreed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So what was your experience? And um, I guess, how did you realize you were in the situation? A lot of times people don't realize until they're all the way in, right? Sure, absolutely. So I just want to start by saying that, yes, so many people don't know what it is. And I was one of those people. It was something that was never actively uh, talked about, like from a parental perspective. And I can say that I was definitely deeply enrolled in many societal, cultural, community stereotypes. For example, I thought that domestic violence meant, you know, please forgive me for my ignorance, but I thought it was someone who was uneducated or wearing a wife beater. And it meant someone, you know, pounding their fist into your skull or something. I didn't know any of the nuances of it. So I would not have ever been able to recognize that I was in it. And and when I actually lived through it, which I'll tell you about in a second what it was, um, I would not have even called it that because I would not have known that that's what it was. So uh, my experience was in the context of a three-month dating relationship. And just to give some background to your audience, I am a soon-to-be 41-year-old South Asian woman who was born and raised in America to immigrant parents who had an arranged marriage. So just to give you some cultural (laughs) context, right? Uh, So... Uh, one, I come from a culture in which you're, you're not even supposed to be dating. You're supposed to pretend like you just get married. So, of course, you know, we don't do that. <laughs> but, uh, but so I was I met this person. He was a South Asian attorney and I met him through friends. And it was a very brief three month dating relationship with no love on the table. The whole actual story is truly a lifetime horror movie type story. So I'm just going to cliff notes it for the purpose of time. So I essentially Mm -hmm. met him through friends. Uh, He uh, seemed like I I described him as the nicest person I've I've ever met. Uh, And everything was actually really overly perfect. And I didn't even know that that could be a red flag. So uh, everything was so over the top and extreme and both like his gestures and the things that he felt. And I really got caught up in it, to be honest. And there was one point in the the middle of the three-month dating relationship. And the details of the story are just too 
uh, we would get lost in the fray if I told it to you, but let's just say that I saw his um, disturbed personality one time very vividly, but he was able to psychologically and emotionally manipulate me into believing that it was something entirely different than my understanding. And because he was a master manipulator who had done this to many women, I mean, he knew what worked, right? So then we dated for another month and a half. And essentially on the, um, the day that the relationship ended, uh, that evening he held me hostage in his apartment, suffocated me with a body pillow, um, I was there for 12 hours, super, super incredibly long story about how I got out. But um, the aftermath of it included him uh, threatening me, blackmailing me, blackmailing my father, which uh, he, you know, he understood what he could blackmail a South Asian woman with. Uh, for example, the woman prior to me, he blackmailed her with photos of her in a bikini, something that, you know, your life wouldn't be destroyed if there was a picture of you in a bikini, correct? <laughs> right. um, but, but mine would be, for example, right? So there was things like that. I filed the order of protection. I was granted an emergency order of protection, found out he had an existing order of protection from another South Asian woman one year prior to me. Uh, and again, I, all, all of this was just so, it was beyond uh, comp comprehension, right? And in that time, I was in just such... Uh, fight flight mode and I was just going through all the motions so I went to court I spent seven months in court it was a civil case my brother told me not to press criminal charges because he was very afraid of what this person would do in retaliation uh, so I did pursue the civil case with the same female person of color judge uh, in the first case just one year prior I had a three inch binder of evidence I lost my case uh, the judge literally, I mean, her entire ruling was victim blaming, telling me what she would have done, that she wouldn't have just laid there. She would have picked up a lamp. She would have told her friends, all these things. Uh, I was, I lost most of my friends, lifelong friends, like including friends from when I was four years old. And I was persecuted by, I would say like 60% of my born and raised in America, highly educated community for simply speaking out about what happened to me. Uh, so I always say, you've probably heard me say this, that saying that my life turned on its head would be like an egregious understatement. And uh, in, in the aftermath for the next four years, I lived through extreme PTSD and depression. And um, that's another thing, you know, whether we get into it or not, but it was something that I never, there was never any conversations around mental health in my family. Like in spite of my brother being a physician and my dad being, you know, having four uh, science related degrees. We just never talked about it. So no one knew how to deal with it. And most of all, I didn't know how to deal with it myself. So that's kind of like the, the nutshell <laughs> version of it. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to discuss any part of it. Nothing is off the table for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because so I, I was in a domestic violence relationship for nine months. Mm -hmm. And a lot of everything you're saying is the same. And in particular, I think what people miss is how perfect the yes. relationship starts off mm -hmm. and how very charming these individuals are. Absolutely, yes. Because that's one of their grooming, like, you know, their, their grooming um, behaviors. Yeah, behaviors, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it was like, oh my God, you're so amazing. You're so beautiful. You're the most perfect. Oh my God, soulmate. I'm going to wine you and dine you, and I'm going to just live and die in the sun and moon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh my, and so it, it gets started so like fairy tale. Like, yes, fairy tale and very intense. Like, 
that, that I also felt, I also felt that. And because I had never experienced it before, and I guess there were so many parts of me that were caught up in this like romanticism of what, of what I'd seen relationships, like even in films looking like, like especially South Asian films, I'm like, oh, like this is it. Like, this is my person. Like, you know, um, and I really, for a moment I had those thoughts uh, just because I'd never been treated so, so well by somebody. Um, and it, it was, it, and I wouldn't have known at that time that it was over the top. Yes. I just thought it was like finally someone treating me the way I deserve to be treated. Night <laughs> in shining armor. Yes. <laughs> and so then when it's, I, what the other thing you said about he was the, the, what did you say? Like the kindest or the sweetest? Yes, the nicest person the I'd ever nicest, met. Yeah. This person for me as well was the kindest, sweetest, funniest, most charming person I literally have ever met. Right. And so anyone that would meet him would be like, oh, you know, he's such a nice person. And, and oh, and you look so happy and all these things. And so then when things start to unravel, mm. then I think this is also part of the manipulation is that all of a sudden the gaslighting starts. Correct. And then it's like, oh, but it's you. It's right. You. It's your fault because right. you spoke out or because you have an opinion or because you are disagreeing with me. And then you have all of the environment around you that like you, with your experiences, that's just not supportive. Right. So you're like, oh, maybe it is me. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and, and that is part of the manipulation because one of the, the most unfortunate things about abuse is that abusers don't abuse everyone, right? Like they don't abuse their parents. They may not abuse their sister or their best friend or, you know, the bar association they're a part of. So everyone looks at that person in the context of their lens and their experience. So then when you come forward and you say, no, but this was my experience, no one is able to reconcile uh, your experience against theirs so they just think you're wrong that you're lying and it's very easy for that person to then make you out to also be a liar and that's right. one of the one of the things that's just so I guess part and parcel of people who are these uh, you know chronic abusers manipulators gaslighters narcissists sociopaths like the whole sum total umbrella of all of it mm-hmm. yeah and then there's a lot of uh, again with the gaslighting there's a lot of isolation I think that yes. happens yes and so then that makes it so much harder for people to leave and and uh, speak out and then also for many women that are married or with children in these relationships there are no resources right, right? so then like where do they go so that's I think what's so important about talking about this is that you know you catch people you know maybe that are getting into this right recognizing it for what it is well, yeah, and even something so simple, like I always say, we, our education system, for example, when I look back at it, I'm like, did, did algebra, geometry, physics, chemistry, did any of these things actually serve me any real life purpose? Like, no, to be, to be honest, would something like healthy relationships and learning something like what an abusive relationship looks like, what gaslighting is? I didn't know what gaslighting was until I was 32 years old, until I kind of come forward as a domestic violence uh, survivor or victim, whatever I called it at that time. And someone sent me this Yasher Ali uh, Huff Post article and it blew my mind I was like oh wow like I've experienced this many times in my life even in the context of parental relationships you know like uh so I then started to realize that there's all been the, these themes in my life um and I, again I would not never have called those themes with my parents abuse I wouldn't have called those themes with with any of the dating relationships abuse uh because I, just, I honestly just really didn't know what abuse was right right it, it didn't look like 
like our vision or our representation, we have had that represented right. as right. Correct. not what we experienced. Right. Right. It's right. just so much more obvious. And, but, um, but actually it's insidious. It is, it is absolutely. And and one of the things too, it's like, I remember in my, in my relationship, all of a sudden, like, like that one and a half that months, that was perfect. It then became this thing where I was constantly like on edge where he would react very extremely to something. And I would just, I would feel like I was walking on eggshells or that I had to be a certain way to be pleasing to him. And it, it but of course, unfortunately, like I was still, I, I was comparing the new behavior to the old behavior. So I, I myself couldn't reconcile the new behavior. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's very interesting. And the shame, I think it's another huge part of it. Absolutely. Is, right. Not just the shame from the person that is the victimizer, but also what we're talking about culture. So like me being Greek, my husband's Indian. So like we have similarities right. in terms of, Um, you know, the parents are all knowing and we have to be submissive, especially women have to be submissive and serve their husbands. And and so there's a lot of, oh, how dare you, you know, how dare you stand up for yourself and have a voice and how dare you think that you're equal. And, and so all of these things, there's like these internal conflicts as well, not just as a woman in America, but as coming from your culture, like there's cultural layers too. Correct. And then it's, for me, it was also compounded with, I mean, I know you and I just met a few years ago, uh, mm-hmm. but I have been someone who, if anyone looked at me, or even if I, you know, self-evaluated, I would have called myself a strong, badass, empowered woman. Like, I am not the type in my own mind of woman whom this happened to. Uh, so, you know, if my ex at that time had not forced my hand into having to tell anyone, I never wanted to tell anyone. I never thought that I would. I, that wasn't my life plan. Um, I, and being, you know, whether it be Greek or Indian or any, you know, mm-hmm. any uh, belonging to any ethnicity, we have these uh, cultural layers that, for example, like I didn't want to tell my parents because I knew that it would bring them such incredible grief. And not only there was but there was also even at 32 years old there was so much fear on my end to tell them like uh because i knew that i would be blamed by everyone including them for what happened to me and that's i think the saddest thing about our culture and society even in 2020 it doesn't matter whether it's rape or domestic violence or or anything women are made culpable for the things that they experience and uh we put that we largely put the blame on them and and we know that now we know that as women right so uh that makes that makes the whole process of coming forward just that much harder mm-hmm. yeah and then all of the reactions you get when you do come forward. absolutely yeah no and, and that changes your life uh and i believe uh and this might sound discouraging to and I, and I hate to say this but if i knowing what i now know if i could go back in time and offer 32 year old smitha you know in 2012 any insight and advice i would honestly i would sadly tell myself not to bother like mm-hmm. i would say like whatever happened happened but like i i have no faith in the justice system at present like my life was actually altered more unfortunately and i feel very ashamed to say this it was altered more because i spoke out about what happened to me mhm i you suffered yeah i was punished i was punished and then that when people hear my story, they get so fixated on the Lifetime horror movie part, like the being held. They want to hear that part. That's the part that's most appealing to them. And that's a part that like is, you know, captivating. Uh, but 
that's the part that was the easiest for me to like kind of reconcile and compartmentalize even from a psychological perspective, like, because mm-hmm. I could be like, Oh, like a psychopath did something to me, you know, whatever, like that's 4% of the population. <laughs> but mm-hmm. then everything else, like when it came to my friends and my community and the justice system, that was the real trauma. Uh, because that was my betrayal of, it was a betrayal of an understanding that I had like lived from my entire life, like this black and white righteousness, idealism. And all of a sudden that was completely turned on its head. And that was like, this, that was the real suffering for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And cause people, I think people um, relate more to stories, Yes, you know, and because then they can say, Oh, that can happen to me. Mm. But when we get into like, the criminal justice system and the process they're like oh yeah you know like they can't relate to it no no and they can't relate to it and even when it came to stuff like my friends and my community the i would say 99 percent of the response that i received was uh like disbelief that that would not be their friends like i experienced something so unique and special (laughs) that was probably said something about me if my friends could leave me if my community could persecute me there was like again some culpability in it because no one could fathom that their friends would leave them or that their friend you know wouldn't stand for them or that their community would persecute them and i i mean that that again that was all part of the trauma Mm -hmm. the real trauma was that yeah but you know then i think when i think back to it and i think um other people that like greeks or indians whatever maybe would have not opened their mouth no they wouldn't have not stood up and stayed which is many of like our parents like my parents generation i know so many women that i believe are in abusive relationships and they just stay married for 30 or 40 or 50 years because that's what you do. Right. And so then I think to myself, okay, well, then this individual that victimized me is going to just find someone that won't speak out. Of course. And will stay for 40 years. Right. And then it's like, oh, yeah. So then, then it's like reconciling that where it's like, oh, I had the strength to speak out. But then that's also what harmed me. Right. It, it's... It's like such a, it's like internal turmoil. It is, it is an internal turmoil. It's a perfect way to describe it because when I actually came forward about what happened to me, I found out that my ex had done something similar to at least six women before me. And what really bothered me was that like, I, you know, these, these people knew I was dating him, but no one thought to drop me a Facebook message or figure out some way to inform me that I was dating someone who was so deeply disturbed. And mm-hmm. um, that real that was like another trauma because I know I spent my like the three years following the incident, I tried to spare everyone from dating him. Um, and ultimately, yes, you know, he did, this person ended up getting married and all the women before me didn't speak out. And, um, like, I, I just felt, I, I felt so burdened, like in, in every regard, I felt so uh, burdened and it wasn't, you know, sometimes I know in the context that you and I connected, it's like, I, I kind of, kind of almost have to tell myself a story to make myself okay with what happened to me. Uh, and part of that story is doing something like these shares, <laughs> to be honest, because it's like, this is the only way that I can make real sense of what I experienced in, in, by trying to pay it forward. Otherwise it's just like, why did this happen to me? Yes. Yes. And that's the nature of trauma is that we have to find a way to process the experience where we were in freeze 
and we weren't able to fight or flight. Correct. Yeah. So in that moment, when you're being attacked, whether it's verbally or physically or mentally, we are stuck in freeze and we can't fight or flight. And so that all gets stuck in our body. And the only way to process that out is to keep processing it. Right. To keep talking about it and to keep, um, you know, like moving on it and therapy and like all of these different things, but just to keep processing it and not to just let it sit there and just go into the back of your mind and avoid it. Right. Which I think is what a lot of people do. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so how did you get the courage to just to say, you know what, like the title of this, like, why does this keep happening to me? How did you get the title to just say, you know, I mean, to get the, the courage to say no more, I'm out. You know, for me, my situation, because it was so brief and because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in the context of marriage, there was no children. uh, I really, you know, even if I may have had loving feelings towards him, I wasn't the kind of person who, you know, immediately started imagining his last name behind mine or it was very in that way, even though it was intense, it was still casual. And uh, so I think it was much easier for me uh, to, to end it. Uh, whereas I know that when there's financial, emotional manipulation, uh, manipulation and abuse and marriage and children, it's so much more complicated. Right. Uh, so for me, it was just kind of like, I, I reached my tipping point because I felt myself like constantly being in a state of anxiety and panic. And I knew that this was not my person. Like I, I knew, uh, in that second month and a half, um, but it really culminated in our final week of dating, uh, that I was, we were actually had gone on a vacation together with our friends and every single day of the vacation, I was miserable. We went to, I forget some St. Martin or somewhere. And twice while I was on this vacation, I called Delta to book my flight back. But what was so terrible was that I didn't actually book a flight back because I didn't want to ruin the vacation for my friends because that's the way I was thinking. Um, And I even never expected to tell anyone because I didn't want to ruin all of their relationships with him. Like I just wanted to process this all by myself. So um, the, the, leaving part was easy and for me that even the speaking out part like the taking action part once i understood what it was and received guidance from my brother and like my brother and sister-in-law had a friend at the fbi who told us that we had to file an order of protection um i never considered back then like should i be doing this uh i've always and you've seen my my posts on facebook i'm very like righteous. I'm very justice oriented. Uh, And I actually think that's a huge personality flaw. Like I'm not tooting my own horn or patting my own back. Like it's, if I could take out one part of my personality, it would actually be that. (laughs) Spare myself a lot of suffering. But um, I felt very compelled, like, oh no, like this is just what you have to do. You have to speak out. You have to um, take legal action. And it was interesting because uh, several months into it, uh, when I told my mom that I was going to be speaking out about what happened and I was preparing her because I knew all of the aunties and uncles who are not my well-wishers in any way would be, would have something to say to her. So I was, I wanted to give her a heads up. And she said to me something that's so telling. She goes, Smita, I know your heart. I know who you are and why you want to do this, but can you wait until you get married? Um, because she felt that my speaking out would uh, preclude me from finding a life partner. And in many ways, it probably did. <laughs> because at least culturally, like if I was looking at an Indian man, maybe right, at least, yeah, yeah, a South Asian man, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did. And uh, so yeah, 
I mean, I don't know if I answered your question properly, yeah. but, <laughs> yeah. but th those, those parts were kind of easy for me. It was more like um, the mental health struggle was very difficult for me. Yeah. And I'm all about like a lot of times when I'm talking, you know, like to clients and hopefully in the future podcast, I think it's just so important to speak your truth yes. because if you don't speak your truth, you're not becoming who are you are meant to be. Correct. And you're not attracting all of the people and situations that you are meant to attract. And you, we suffer like anxiety, depression, all of these things. Yeah. So um, yeah, that answers the question. I think to like, when I think to my situation where I came out after nine months in this, you know, I was thrown down the stairs basically. Oh my God. <laughs> and my, I was sleeping. I was sleeping. <gasps> Apparently I had done something wrong. And so my ex fiance, we were engaged. He came into the house, I had been drinking and he had found out one of his relatives was diagnosed with cancer. And so he was having a hard time dealing with it, but somehow it was my fault. So he just like woke me up out of my sleep and started, you know, throwing the, he was just in a rage and I was trying to leave and I couldn't. So he kind of like was trying to stop me from leaving. So he pushed me down the stairs. I fell down like a whole flight of stairs. And, you know, there was a knife and I mean, it was just, I was trying to protect myself. It was just super scary. So. Um, once the police came, there was a mandatory uh, protection order placed, hmm. and it expired after I don't know how long. Um, he was uh, mandated to go to anger management and then um, and therapy and medication, all of these things, which he did. And so I tried again, and then it happened again. So oh, yeah. so people don't change, you know, unless they have true true insight. And um, and then that was you know thankfully the end of that. Right. But, um, but I think that you're right when you speak your truth and you tell people they're like, it's like, it's like uncomfortable for them because it's very, very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially, and I was just saying with our cultural layers, it's infinitely more uncomfortable. You know, it's much easier for people to care about the Harvey Weinstein victims or Bill Cosby, but to have to actually sit with you or to sit with me and then confront their own, you know, behaviors and actions. How do we as a community society contribute to people like my ex or your ex doing these things? Because, and that's a thing Like I really put it out there that everyone is culpable. Because like, let's say, for example, none of those organizations remove my ex. Like not everyone, my, there was friends of mine who wouldn't even unfriend him on Facebook. So all of these little things provide validation for someone who will just perpetually continue to abuse women. Uh, and they offer credibility to him because when the next woman goes online and sees that she has 52 mutual friends, she's not going to think that this person is a bad person. So it's these little like, micro those those end up being micro traumas <laughs> in yeah. addition to like the macro trauma of the whole experience yeah yeah then that's that was making me think of like when I told my father um that I was telling and I mean he was supportive but at the same time he they, it was very much the same of what you said like oh what if people what are people gonna say right kind of like what are people gonna say um and so then when I met my husband now, who's actually Indian, right. um, but he's very Americanized. Um, right. But, and my father said to me when we met, he said, does he know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. know everything? And I was like, yes, he knows yes. everything right. I've ever done. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of what you uh, 
or the rest of them, his generation would consider quote unquote to be shameful. Right, right. <laughs> shameful, taboo, correct, yeah. Yeah, and so there's that like liberation, right? Where you're like, no, I'm not going to hide and I'm going to speak out and I'm going to be loud and about it and proud and move on and grow and, and have other people hear the story. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I'm, I'm not the one that came up with the, this phrase and you, you'll probably say it better than me, but, you know, violence perpetuates due to silence or it thrives in silence. So the more people, whether it be in this context or in any context who are telling their stories without apology or shame and saying, yes, this happened to me, but this is who I am in the wake of what happened. You take away power from abusers, you know, uh, and that's a, they're banking like, your abuser, my abuser, whoever, they are banking on people and women feeling shameful. And as soon as like, you know, hopefully there will be this deluge of women uh, going forward and not just women, but everyone, there's men obviously who of course experience uh, abuse in, in many different contexts. But as soon as, as soon as someone shares their story out loud, you have taken power away from the, from abusers generally speaking. So um, I hope we're coming into a massive tipping point moment in that and a big cultural um, and societal shift. But these things, these conversations definitely, I believe contribute to that. Yeah, for sure. It's like what you said, everybody has to be culpable mm -hmm. and people will be held accountable. Yes. And, and it's not enough, just like um, reading How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm -hmm. you know? And he says, it's not enough to say, I'm not racist. You have to be an anti-racist. Right. You have to be active. You can't be a passive observer and say, I'm not a racist. You have right. to be active. And I think that's the same thing with this. You can't just say, oh, but I'm not, I don't think women should be abused. Right. But you can't just say, I don't think women should be abused. You have to be an anti-abuser. <laughs> right, no, you, you do. And and it was very interesting because in my experience, while my my entire existing friend circle, including my lifelong friends, while they made this mass exodus out of my life, there were perfect strangers off the interwebs, interestingly enough, via my Facebook page who came into my life because they were like, oh, hell no, like this can't happen to a sister of mine, even though I was a stranger to them. And it was it was very, very interesting. And those people, like I always say that my dad and strangers on the internet saved my life because I don't think I could have um, uh, endured that incredible burden because for me, my trauma wasn't just the incident. It was every moment thereafter for the next seven months was a trauma. It was even a trauma when I reported my ex to the bar association and uh, the person who testified for him, who, uh, well, I won't even say it because it'll just, it'll, it, it opens up too many cans of worms, but the person who lied under oath for him, I reported both of them to the bar association and that whole process of them finding the women verifying that I was telling the truth, believing me, but then saying that because I lost my case and because no other women were willing to come forward, that there was no action that they could take. And so it was just, it was incessant. Um, and uh, it was really hard to recover because uh, I never had a moment to, to, do, to, to heal. Yeah, a moment of like victory or- of Right. You're right. You know, this was awful. Being right, or no justice. Right. And no justice. There was, there was only loss. Like there was the loss of the $30,000 and then the money spent in the aftermath and the losing of friends. Um, I mean, for so many years after, if I would even hear of some 
like some news about my lifelong best friend who I was her maid of honor. Like I, I, I remember the night that I learned that she had her first child uh, and you've seen me with my nephews and niece, my nephew and niece, mm-hmm. like, and I thought of her just like my sister. So when I heard that, I remember going into this, like, I mean, hysterical, not even rage, like just like this hysterical depression. Like it was, it, it was so debilitating. And, and uh, those were the things that I suffered for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those microaggressions and, yes. and overt aggressions and insidious aggressions. There's just so yeah. many. Yeah, and, and it's just, again, like I always call it my, it was a betrayal of my understanding of how life was supposed to work. Like if you told me right now, Smita, like God forbid that this ex came back into your life and I had some connection to him, I'd be like, I'm cutting him out of my life. You know, like I didn't know, I'm so sorry. Like it would just be like, I wouldn't have to think about it, you know? Uh, and and if you needed me to do something, I would stand with you. Like if you needed me to go to court, if you need anything, uh, sign a petition, that was nearly impossible to, to get. Mm-hmm. And then, but then you think like now, even with, I know we, we align a lot on all like our political views as well, right. is that all of this that's coming up now, and even the coronavirus, is that I think it's sifting out all, all of the people and the things that don't belong, like don't belong in our lives, mm-hmm. right? Like all of a sudden, it's like the truth about all of these people and who's going to support you and who's going to be by your side and who actually believes in, uh, in, in speaking your truth and, right. and being by your side and helping someone who's going through something difficult versus, oh no, you know, that's not about me. I'm not, that's, that doesn't affect me. So I don't care. And so all of these people we've been friends with since we were born and realizing, oh, well, like, we actually don't have anything in common. Right. And we're not actually really friends. Right, right. <laughs> so, so in some ways, that's just like, it, I think back of, of uh, you've said this too, of you before the, the abuse and you after the abuse. And right. the person you were before the abuse and the person you were after the abuse. Right. And I think that the person that you become after the abuse is a more pure, a pure version of who you are. Oh, absolutely. It sifts it out, right? Right, right. Like it becomes you, you distilled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and absolutely. And who do you want to be friends with? Who are my friends? Right. Like who, you know, what is really real? Like, and if it's not real and completely authentic, then maybe it just doesn't belong in my life. Right, right. And these are, these are things that unfortunately most people don't even you know, you just go through life kind of like rinse or repeat going through the motions and just calling it all good until you suffer something, until you live through a trauma or a major loss or a diagnosis, you know, like um, it's, it's unfortunate that it takes these, these moments in time to then like clarify, distill, filter, sift, as, as you said, right. And coronavirus is a, uh, or, or the past four years in the political climate, it's been this, <laughs> it's been exactly that. And I think, and I, I imagine because you and I are so connected in this way, uh, there's been, I actually feel like the past four years has been this like ongoing trauma, <laughs> like that I, that I feel that I suffer more because I lived through my trauma because I had actually after a four, you know, four long years of PTSD and depression, I had wrapped up my situation with like a neat little bow saying like, yes, Mita, you were very unique and special in that you just happened to uniquely and specially know some really trash people, um, mm-hmm. but it's not everybody. So go be, go live your best life. <laughs> you know? right. and, and that would then 
then 2000, November 2016 happened and, uh, and it became, oh God, oh no, it's like, it's actually everybody. It's like it, 90% of everyone I know. Right, it, right. And that, that was terrible. And so that's kind of been like this uh, insufferable part of the past several years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so important for us to just to continue speaking out. Yes. And that's what also I'm so grateful for the last four years is that this resurgence of the women's movement and the civil rights movement and the LGBTQ movement and all of that. And this talking about domestic violence and talking about, you know, uh, me too, me too. Right. Movement is that that would not have happened maybe not now, at least, had we not been in the political climate that we are in now. So so true. And so we have to just continue doing the work. And um, is there anything else that you like, want to share about this process? You know, growing from it? I think the the one thing that I would say is if you live through something, right, there's so many different ways to heal. And uh, when you tell someone that you've lived through something, people will offer advice, right? Like most people can't just sit with you. So you have to be able to, I think, sit with yourself and say, which is really hard because when you live through a trauma, you just want to go back to the way your, your previous state that felt like good. Uh, And you want to, you want to get back there. Um, But I, I want to say to people who are listening that, healing from anything, you know, your experience is yours. So never ever trauma compare. Um, Your suffering is your suffering, mine is mine. Uh, But it's not this thing that's like, it's not a linear trajectory, right? We just think that we're going to do some work and we're going to land at a certain place called good or the way we used to be. And it's not that, right? It's this roller coaster ride of um, making some feeling better, making some progress, and then falling back to the floor again. And um, if I had known that, like if somebody had been able to articulate that to me, I think that that really would have helped me um, offer myself some grace, kindness, compassion, um, because I didn't have that for myself. I just wanted to, I wanted to get to good uh, and be okay. And uh, I really, I, I, I caused myself a lot of suffering just because of what I didn't know. So uh, tell your stories, have these conversations, offer yourself that grace, kindness, and compassion. And um, just thank you for having me today. Yeah, thank you. And then can people find you um, online? Or- yes, absolutely. So my blog is smita, S-M-I-T-A, shares.com. And then anybody is welcome to follow my personal page on Facebook, Smita Chan, C-H-A-N-D. Uh, and I'm glad to, I'm always happy to be connected, have conversations um, with quality people. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Eleni. All right. All right Bye. Thank you for listening to my talk today with Smita of Smita Shares. That was really inspiring to hear her story of domestic violence and survival and her experience of PTSD. And my hope is that every story that I share and that my guests share inspires you to live and speak your truth and to live your most authentic life. You can find other episodes of Why Does This Keep Happening to Me on Apple, Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about Delray Psych and Wellness by visiting our website, delraypsych.com. Until next time, this is Dr. B.